This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Two sisters and a brother. The younger sister is Mary, the older sister is Martha, and the brother is Lazarus. This is a special family in the biblical story. Specifically, it's a special family in the life of Jesus. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head to rest. Jesus, we know, probably did not have a fixed location that he called home. But Jesus, like many itinerant prophets or rabbis, lived not off of the land, but he lived off of benefactors. There were people all over that gave Jesus food. You remember, Judas was even the treasurer for the disciples, so there must have been money flowing in from other people to accommodate this ministry of the Lord. Some of these benefactors in particular locales were simply homes who gave what was, in Hebrew lore, um, the idea of a prophet's chamber to men like Jesus. There were these places, and I remember as a young evangelist, even in the 20th century as a a young Pentecostal preacher kid, um, there were many, many people all over. I didn't have a home except my mom and dad's back home, but for many years I lived from pastor's house to pastor's house, and there were many saints in the churches who always told me, our home's open to you. I never stayed in a hotel. Anywhere I traveled all around the country, there were saints there that I could always call and say, could I have a room tonight? Something like that was the way that Jesus lived, and one of those families who were benefactors in the life of Jesus and their home was open to him were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. may have been that they were actually kin to Jesus. They could have been cousins. Um, We're not sure. We just simply know they were incredibly close to him. They lived in a little town, a little village actually called Bethany, which was a few miles from Jerusalem. And this particular story that we're going to read together was set just weeks before our Lord's Passion. And I think the story is, in many ways, a very universal story of the human divine struggle, the human divine interaction. Uh, Their story actually is our story in many, many ways. And, And so today I would encourage all of us to remember as we go into this that the Bible is among many inspired things an invitational book. And there's lots of elements to how we read Scripture, how we view Scripture, but one of, I think, the most important things that Scripture is, is an invitation. Scripture invites us into scenarios. It invites us into not not scenarios that are particularized in history and are only to be remembered and regurgitated, but stories that were so profound that they were divinely in inspired form captured because they 2,000, 3,000 years later are still our story. And so the Bible invites us into those, not simply to remember the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but to see the story of all of us. So when we read from the pages of the Bible, we're invited by God to find ourselves there. For the Bible is never simply their story, it's always our story. And I'd really like to practice that together today, and I'd really like for you as we just kind of walk through this text, would you do me the favor, instead of putting it on me to put a sermon together, which I think has become one of the forms of the church that probably is not the most healthy, I think the house churches that still exist around the world and the house churches that were at the root of the Christian church in the beginning, I think they had something very right when the congregation set together with Scripture in their laps, and there was an open conversation. Uh, A friend of mine, a lady who pastors a church a long, long way away from here, it's a smaller church than this, and so they're more capable of this, but every Sunday, the way they do Scripture is for the week before Sunday, the people know that we're reading the story in John 11 of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and the people read it all week long. There's an open chat room in that church of about 130 people, and the people are devotionally reading it all week long, conversing about that story, and by the, by the time they get to Sunday, now, of course, she's done her work as the pastor, and she's studied, and, and she's really given herself to the text, but she doesn't get up and then do a sermon. She gets up, and she says, we've all been, as a church family, studying and reading the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in John 11, and generally, she'll say, Bill, just call somebody, would you, would you stand up and grab your Bible and read that story, and Bill will read the story. 
And sometimes she'll take off and she'll explain for three to five minutes what she sees in the text. Most normatively, the last time I watched her do this, um, she walked down to the congregation as facilitator and after he read the text, she said, you know, something struck me this week, Mary, in what you said about Mary and Mark. Would you stand up and share that? Mary stands up. And it's this dynamic exchange that a church has to learn how to do. And, and again, it would be hard in a setting this large but just watching that, even if that can't be replicated in every congregation, watching the congregation. I, I watch her sometime when I watch her do this. I watch her at times as she's listening to somebody prattle on about whatever it is they saw in the text. I can see her mind turning thinking, that is not what the text means. That's not what the Greek says. And that's absolutely crazy. Other times I see her up there, Jonathan, in the middle of them, and she is a scholar. I see her looking at a man who spent his life in the plumbing business reading the text, and I'm watching her with her PhD. I'm watching her roll her eyes around and say, John, I would have never thought of that that way. And the word comes alive in incarnate form and the testimony of the people. We can't do it exactly that way this morning, but let's come close and I want you to look for yourself in the pages of this text and transpose your name where their name is, your circumstances where theirs is, and I think the Bible will have a chance to do what I think the Bible really does, and that is come alive to us in incarnate form. So here we are, John 11, verse 1. Let's just walk through the text together. Now, a certain man was ill. Anybody ever been ill? Our beloved Buck Rambo may just called me. Buck had surgery Friday. The doctors were afraid he wouldn't make it through the surgery. She just called. We're in church, dressed up, and our beloved Pastor Buck Rambo may called and said, pray for him. He is hurting so bad. Diabetes, stroke, now this back surgery. He's sitting over there months at a time. Go visit Pastor Buck. There will be days that he hasn't seen anybody except May just sitting there. Now, a certain man was ill. Anybody ever been there? Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, were setting it now. Mary, this is an interesting verse, verse 2. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume. Now, I want to tell you why that's important. Right out of the chute, he says, now I want you to know this Mary is the one who later, the next chapter, six weeks later, the Tuesday before Jesus is crucified on Friday, she has this stupendous experience where she anoints his feet with oil and worships him there and prepares him. This was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. So the writer jumps ahead here because the writer is about to tell you a pretty tough story as it relates to how Mary interacts with Jesus. Mary is about to have a hard time with Jesus in chapter 11. And the author, being kind to Mary, says, I want you to look at her through a future lens. This woman is about to struggle with Jesus desperately, but I want you to know she and Jesus get things right. They finally get things right. This was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother, here's the other thing you need to know about Mary, because the story we normally say John 11 is about Lazarus, I think personally the story is more about Mary. This was the woman who anointed the Lord with perfume, wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. Now, it starts out that a certain man was ill. But now it's her brother that was ill. Everybody on some level is a certain person. You are somebody's certain person, and you are somebody's brother, somebody's sister, somebody's mom, somebody's dad. I say Pastor Buck is ill, and for some of you, you don't even know who Pastor Buck is because he's a certain man who's ill. For me... He's everything. A certain child was ill. You know Monroe Carroll is filled today, but certain children are somebody's children. And the scripture's pointing out 
that these certain people are somebody's very intimate and close to some. Particularizing. So the sisters, her brother Lazarus is ill. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. I talked to the kids about communion today. If I talk to the kids about prayer, which I will some, at some point and have, this is a great way of describing prayer. The sisters sent a message to Jesus. Anybody know what it means to send messages to God? We all send messages to God in different forms, don't we? I remember I used to stand beside Ricky Etheridge, a pastor friend of mine. As a young preacher, I used to set up on the platform at the little church there in Paragould, Arkansas, and I would sit beside Ricky. Prayer's never been the easiest thing for this left brain uh, preacher, but Ricky Etheridge was one who really, in those early days, taught me at least to be, he may not have taught me how to pray, but he taught me to long for prayer and I was enamored by the way he prayed because I remember I would stand there and we would be praying during our prayer time there at church. We had open prayer in the Pentecostal church. Everybody prayed out loud. And, and um, I would stand there beside Ricky and Ricky would start praying and he would say, Lord, and it just sounded like he was talking to God standing right there beside, Lord, the other day I was down at the hospital and I was up in the uh, room there Paragold Memorial Hospital, like the Lord needed to know. He said, it was Paragold Memorial. I, wasn't, I was there in Paragold, Paragold or Methodist Hospital, and I was up uh, visiting Sister Lucille, and, uh, you know, Sister Lucille, and he's talking to God. Sister Lucille's having a really, really hard time. It was the, uh, I was up on the fifth floor. No, seventh floor. Seven. Fifth floor. It was the fifth floor. I was on the fifth floor, and he said, she's there in room, uh, what was it? And he just, the whole time, what? 532, I think it was was 532, Lord. I'm sitting there thinking, Ricky, God knows what room the woman's in. Get to the point. (laughs) And then I would think, God not only knows what room she's in, he knows she's sick. And I'd think, why are we telling God anything? And I would wrestle with what it meant to send messages to the Lord. I have never been the greatest at sending messages to the Lord, but there's never been a time in my life when I have stopped sending messages to the Lord. Even when I don't know how to send messages to the Lord, my heart presses them out because there just feels this ever-abiding need to get our burdens to Him as though He doesn't own them already. And maybe it's not about God getting all the information. Maybe prayer is about getting it off of us and understanding and experiencing in that moment what has already been true, that before we pray, he's already answered. So before we pray, he's already heard. But maybe the prayer is working on our end even more deeply than it's working on God's end. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Oh, the need to send messages. Lord, he who, whom you love is ill. It's interesting to me that they didn't say, Lord, Lazarus is ill. But they said, tell him the one you love is ill. They had taken enough Dale Carnegie courses. I love Dale Carnegie. They had taken enough Dale Carnegie courses that they knew how to present a message. They did what we used to call and my understanding of prayer early on, they reminded the Lord. We used to say, we're going to storm the gates of heaven and we're going to remind God as though God needs reminded of all this stuff. It was almost as though we were going to hold accountable. You know, we're going to hold God accountable. We said, Lord, you remember how? The Lord's like, no, I hadn't thought about that in a while. You remember how? We were reminding him. We were putting him on his best behavior from our perspective. And they immediately go for the jugular of compassion by saying, tell him that the one you love, and the reason you love him is because he's been a benefactor. He's been good to you. He's taken care of you. His home's always been open. There's a relationship here. Remind him of that. This isn't just a certain man. This is someone that Jesus loves. Lord, I want to remind you that you love this man, and there's reason. Really put it on him thick. Tell him the one he loves is ill. 
But when Jesus heard it, and, and the but there, that conjunction is automatically troubling because when you see but, you know that the whole conversation is about to turn. The point was, they loved Jesus, Jesus loved them, they had a need, they sent a message, but, and within Christian spirituality, within this, this thing that Jesus brought to earth, God in flesh, there are lots of buts, rathers. There are these turns that we don't want. And as soon as you read but, you're like, uh, here we go. More complexity. Can't God just do it the way we want God to do it one time? Can't this just flow the way we think it ought to flow? You remember that old campus crusade saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, we love God and have a wonderful plan for his life too, if he would just listen to us. But when Jesus heard it, he always hears. And I want to tell you about that. Jesus knew this thing about hearing because the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus prayed prayers with many tears saying, let this cup pass from me. And he was heard. But you know good and well. He didn't get what he wanted. Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me until finally he beats his head against the grain of the universe until his heart breaks and he whispers, nevertheless, oh, the, the buts and the ors and the rathers and the neverthelesses in this process, nevertheless, not my will but thine. Jesus prayed prayers with vehement cries and tears and was answered. No, the writer of Hebrews said, and was heard. Sometime the healing is in the knowledge that you're heard. You're heard by somebody who loves you. Have you ever sat with somebody pouring your heart out, their heart out to you, and you could not meet them fully where they wanted you to? You could not go to where they were. You could not feel the pain they felt. All you could do, and it would be cliche for you to look at them and say, they're the one that lost the child. You can't look at them and say, I know, unless you've done that too. There are times that the best you can give them is, I hear you. And even if you say, I understand, it shuts them down. They're not asking for you to understand. Henry Nouwen said, in my deepest hour of depression, my friends came in an effort to fix me. And then as the weeks passed on, they quit coming because I realized when they could no longer fix me, they thought their job was through. But I had one friend who came and never said a word, but would week after week wash my feet and sit with me and hear me. But when Jesus heard it, oh, how much more we want sometime than his hearing, but he always hears. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this is profound. He said, I mean, the servant gets there to him, something like this. Mary and Martha told me to come and tell you that the one that you love is sick. And he just knew that Jesus was going to start gathering his stuff and said, we got two days to get there. We got to move. But instead, the Bible said that Jesus looked at the servant and he looked at the disciples sitting there with him and he said, listen to what he said. He said, this sickness is not, un this sickness will not lead to death. Look at it. This illness does not lead to death. Time out. This illness does not lead to death. Does anybody know what happened two days later? Somebody say it, Lazarus. Anytime somebody says the word of the Lord is always easily read and interpreted, I remember this text. Jesus just said this illness will not lead to death, and Lazarus' words, even the words of God, are words, and they are not always easily interpretable. 
And so when somebody says you don't have to interpret them, just read it. They mean what they mean. They say what they mean. They mean what they say. Words are complex, and the ways of God are complex, and even when the words come off of Jesus' mouth, they're not always the easiest to interpret because I would have thought when Jesus said this illness will not lead to death, that means Lazarus is not going to, and he did. Words never capture, they point. And an unrealistic demand on words to give you exact meanings can lead you into a dogmatism and a legalism that hurts spirituality more than helps it. Sometime you sit with this humbly thinking you know what it means, but when it means something else, instead of discarding it, you'd go deeper and say, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. This illness does not lead to death, and these are some of the most healing and simultaneously painful words in the whole text. Jesus says, rather, there's another one, rather it is for God's glory. I want to tell you, on one hand, to be in the hardest circumstance that you can imagine, to be in the pain of sickness and death, and to hear God say, this illness is not going to lead to death, there's comfort there. The only problem we've addressed. The next words out of his mouth is, but I want to tell you, this illness is for God's glory. On one hand, I think read properly, I read that through the lens of somehow this is going to turn for good because I know God's glory is shared in marvelous ways with us. And this is not about some egomaniacal person in the sky who's using us as court jesters and watching our dance of pain for his own Wheaties. But this is a God who's going to do things for good. And if it's good for us, it's good for God. And if it's good for God, it's good for us. So in the best sense, I can read this and say, great. But you be the person at Monroe Carroll with a child with a congenital heart defect that's not going to make it through surgery and let Jesus walk into your room and say, this is for the glory of God. And on one hand, there is a sentiment in that that makes you press the Bible close to your chest. And on the other hand, there's a part of you that would want to throw the book out the window. And the complexity of it all is those two sentiments can exist in the same space at the same time. And, and here, the argument then goes into, okay, what does he mean that God's going to be glorified? This illness is here for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's, that's my friend Jim McGuigan, whose daughter lost her three-year-old child, Jim's three-year-old grandchild to leukemia. And Jim, this marvelous preacher, said the friends, one after another came to him and said, God took the child to teach us all these marvelous things. And Jim said, finally, one day I put my foot down and said, okay, God was using our baby to teach us things. Why was he teaching the baby? That three-year-olds are so dispensable that they can go through IVs and nauseous and gangrenous rectums. Shots and pain and ravaged bodies. They're so dispensable that God can put them through grievous hell for three to four years to teach us adults some better message. Pray tell, what was he teaching the child? No, Jim says, God does not do these things. But in a world where these things happen, God comes and says, what can we do with this now? And there are the Augustinian reformed Calvinist side who says no, and somehow in God's sovereign love, he does do these things. He does take our children. He does cause pain, but the end result justifies it, and it will be good. On the other side, us Armenian Wesleyan people say no, God doesn't cause it. The world gives us plenty of raw material. God redeems it. He doesn't waste it. But the struggle... The theological struggle should never be lost in erudition and abstraction and textbooks because the only place theology really matters is in the three-year-old bodies of grandchildren. 
and in brothers who lie sick and in bankruptcies undeserved. This illness doesn't lead to death. It is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, look at verse 5. Though, and there's one of those things in this walk with God, one of those words, but rather though, come on, just give it straightforward. But there's all of these twists and turns psychologically, spiritually. Though Jesus loved, and when you hear, in spite of the fact that he loved, you already start drawing up, oh, it's coming. It's one of those, I love you, but... Though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard, because he always hears, his ear is not heavy. After having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And let me just tell you what two days longer meant. He stayed long enough for Lazarus to succumb to death and die. This illness is not in the death. It's for my glory. And though I love you and I love him, I'm not coming. Having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the servant, expecting him to gather his bag quickly, the servant turns around to see Jesus responding to the most desperate prayer, responding by sitting down. And the servant said, are you coming? And Jesus said, no. In spite of the fact that he loved him, he sat down on him, stayed away from him, and allowed him to go through God only knows what in the absence of hospice care, in the absence of palliative care, what those last two days of young man's life looked like. And Jesus sat down on him. Simultaneously, the Bible says the disciples were relieved. Oh, the complexity that God has to deal with in this universe. The disciples were relieved because, as the text will go on to explain, the disciples didn't want him to go to Bethany because Bethany was near Jerusalem in Judea, and Jesus had a death warrant out for him there, and the disciples were like, Lord, I mean, they were in Perea, across the Jordan on the other side. Jesus was staying out because the kitchen was hot, and the disciples didn't want him to go to Judea, and so when this guy says, you got to come to Judea, the disciples are like, oh, this is bad. We can't go there or we'll all be killed. So when the Lord sits down, Mary and Martha's heart breaks, Lazarus's hope is lost, and the disciples are relieved. Oh, the complexity God has to deal with in this universe. Because beyond the bombs and the missiles and the evil people on both sides, somewhere in Jerusalem and Palestine, somewhere in the West Bank and Gaza, people who love God on both sides lift prayers from heartache and despair. And the Lord has to sort through. Eleven years old, in that little Pentecostal church, I had a Sunday school teacher who believed in prayer, and she believed she knew how to pray, and she told me how to pray. She told me that nothing was too small. She told me that God numbered the hair on our head, and he counted the sparrows that fall, and we could ask God for anything. She said, we should always be Pacific, not Atlantic. We should always be Pacific with our prayers. <laughs> and I was. And I was a devoted little guy from the earliest days, and as an 11-year-old boy, I started exercising that right to prayer that she taught me about Kenny, and I prayed for everything. And that particular summer, we had a great baseball team. 14-game season, Little League fences, 14-game season, our team hit 35 home runs. We were bombers, 11- and 12-year-old. We were, it was the best year. Those same 10 guys, nine or 10 guys, seven years later, uh, we were playing in the high school state championship together. 
All we had was 10 boys. We'd been together from the beginning. It was wonderful. And in that, in that halcyon season, that 11-year-old season, Kiwanis, we went 14-0, and won the championship, went a long way. I remember that whole summer, I prayed that it wouldn't rain. I prayed that it wouldn't rain because it always looked like it was going to rain, and I knew that God cared about everything, and so I'd pray for God to stop the rain, and every night it wouldn't rain, and we'd get our ball game in. And I'd go to church, and I'd testify how I prayed for it not to rain. I noticed kind of the wrinkled-up look on my Sunday school teacher's face, but she had prompted me to this, so she went along with it. I testified. I prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain. We played the ball game. It looked like it was going to rain. We got the thing in. And by the end of that summer, I knew about prayer. I knew how God heard prayers, Don. He hears everybody. And I got on the bus the first day of school down that dusty gravel road we lived on. And I sat down beside Greg Fletcher. His dad, Billy Joe, drove the bus. And my brother beside me, three in a seat. And we went down the road a little ways and three miles up the road. My buddy that I hadn't seen all summer got on the bus. And when he got on the bus there in front of the farm that his family had been farming for four generations, he got on the bus. And I called his name and said, I hadn't seen you in a while. And that 11-year-old boy looked at me, Doc, and he said, been a hard summer. And I said, what happened? And he said, Daddy lost the farm. And I said, why'd y'all lose the farm? And he said, it didn't rain. And theology is not abstraction in the life of an 11-year-old heart. And I looked up at God and said, did I cost them their farm? Did you cost them their farm? Oh, the complexity, Antonio, that God has to sort through when people pray. He breaks Lazarus' heart by sitting down, and the disciples are relieved. The next time you pray, remember, you're not the only one praying. There are others involved in the complex mosaic of life. Then after this, he said to the disciples, two days later, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Two days later, he stands up and said, let's go. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going to go there again? They thought they had dodged this bullet. He'd been sitting there for two days. Jesus answered, there are 12 hours of daylight. Those who walk during the day don't stumble because they see the light of this world. Those who walk at night stumble because the light's not in them. Kind of cryptic. What's it mean? He simply was saying that God's light, God's direction is like light, and I'm listening to God right now. And I was listening to God when I sit down, and I'm listening to God now when I stand up. I was listening to God two days ago when I didn't go, I'm listening to God now, and I'm not stumbling. After saying this, he told them. They're thinking to themselves, okay, maybe it's the moral right thing to do in spite of the fact that it puts him and even more us in jeopardy. His friend Lazarus is sick. I get it. We're going to risk our lives for this guy. And Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, see, the word of the Lord's always easy to understand, isn't it? The word of the Lord's always easy to understand. Isn't that right? Well, here's the word of the Lord. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The people who loved him most said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Let him sleep it off. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. There is much of our interpretation of the Lord's word that is what we think, and it seems absolutely sensible to us. How else do you interpret, Bill? This illness will not lead to death. How else do you interpret? He's asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. Interpret that. There's only one way, right? Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was merely referring to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly. And the one question I got when I get there is, why don't you just tell us plainly from the get-go? Why the cryptic nature of this? What virtues are being developed in the humility as we muddle through uncertainty? But there must be something 
bigger than acuity and accuracy. But finally, he spoke plainly. And he said, Lazarus is dead. <sighs> and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. And I heard on the, on the front seat of that bus, it didn't rain. And for your sake, I'm glad you went 14 and 0. But I remember thinking, what about Levi? What about the farm? Did you really answer my prayer? At times, these stories, the divine revelation of this story is not the clear description of what God's doing. The clearest divinity of this text may be the allowance of us to see the fullness of human struggle. That may be the real beauty of this text. It's not what it reveals about God, but what it reveals about us. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Listen, what plays on your platform may not play on somebody else's platform. What brings joy and rejoicing to you and a spiritual victory for you, I'm okay, okay. I'm glad for your sake I wasn't there. How does Mary and Martha hear that? How does Lazarus hear that? How did... Levi, hear that. It didn't rain. I'm glad you got the season in. This is complex, beautifully complex if we admit it. I'm glad for your sake, not Mary and Martha's, not Lazarus, but I'm glad for your sake I was not there so that you may believe. I get it. This is written 60 years after the crucifixion, but this is a community of people remembering the story, and obviously the story in retrospect is that he was letting a man die so he could raise him from the dead so that they might believe in resurrection from the dead because in a few days their beloved Jesus was going to be dead and they could lean on the hope of resurrection that they seen in Lazarus. Retrospect's great, isn't it? Hindsight is lovely. But who lives their life in hindsight? The community was doing well when they were trying to give us a retrospective, but God did something better than the community intended, and it wasn't the retrospective. He gave us the ability to join with the struggle of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Watch. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Is there any lack of clarity on what's happening here? Here's what I want to show you. This is not the story of Lazarus. Even though he's the guy that gets raised from the dead, that is not the premier primary plot of this story. The story starts with a focus on this is the Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus one chapter later, just before he died. By the way, she did that at the house of Lazarus who was sitting at the table those weeks later, who we know is raised from the dead. Ah, retrospect, hindsight is so... It's so enjoyable, but I don't know altogether how helpful it is because who lives their life in reverse? Good Lord, wouldn't it be nice to have one life to live with and one life to learn with and another life to live with? Wouldn't it be nice just to get all the way through and learn everything and then come back and do it again? Anybody want to start over in kindergarten with what you know now? Jesus gets up. The disciples say, well, here we go. And he heads to Jerusalem. And he's walking up the road. Maybe the same servant runs into the house. And now it's been four days, and Lazarus, or Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And the servant comes in, and Mary and Martha, grieving, are in the house. And only God knows what that looks like. They just lost their brother, beloved brother. And in that season of grieving, the servant busts through the door. Maybe he doesn't bust. Maybe there's enough discretion in decorum. He sticks his head in the door and he says, you're not going to believe this, girls. But Jesus, Johnny come lately, is walking up the road. 
Mary is positioned as the older one, and sometimes, not always, sometime the longer you live, the more things like all things work together for good to them, the love of the Lord. Deb, the longer you live, the more that begins to kind of feel, I think that's true. The more you begin to believe that somehow in this strange admixture of pain and joy, life works out. Somehow, I remember my friend calling me 14 years ago and simply saying into the phone, it won't always feel this way. And I didn't believe him, but now I actually do believe it won't always feel this way. The longer you live, the more you do begin to believe that there is something worth trusting here. The more struggles you go through. And so the Bible says that the older sister, when she heard Jesus was coming, the Bible says that Martha stood up and she went out to meet the Lord. And as she was going out, she turned around to the younger sister. And I can see Mary there. Hurt. Some would call her bitter. God knows she's hurt. And Martha says, sis. And the exchange doesn't even need elaboration. Mary simply shakes her head. Martha said, sis, please. No. I don't have anything to say to him, and I don't have anything to hear from him. I gave him a chance. Martha says, okay. And the Bible says that Mary sat down and remained in the house. Why wouldn't she sit down? Jesus just sat down on her. You sit down on me, I'll sit down on you. I'll show you. I'm not going to church. Now, you sit on me. And she stayed in the house. Martha has not got Jesus so packaged in that if he doesn't work within this framework, all is lost. Martha's framework was broken and disturbed, but her framework was large enough, fluid enough, that she was actually able to take that broken framework out. And when she met Jesus, he wasn't off the hook. She said, where were you? How did we get here? But at least she was in the game. And at least the dishes were being thrown. You know it's over when there's no more anger, there's no more game, there's no more pain because it's so gone there's nothing left to fight about. But as long as the dishes are flying and there's a fight, God knows that we're in the game. And he begins to explain to her. And they have this deep theological conversation about resurrection and life and how Lazarus really hasn't died, but he has died. And if you believe in me, you'll never die. And it's so complex that even now I can't wrap my mind around it. And they get through with this theological process. And the next part of the story says, Martha comes back in and pokes her head gently and sits down beside her sister. And she says, Mary... And tears are dripping down now. And she says, he just wants to see you. Oh, my God. He didn't want to talk to you. Henry Nouwen said, they came to me in my depression, and they talked and talked and talked, and when they couldn't fix me, I realized it was about them. They wanted the relief of having a depressed friend. They left, but one friend kept coming, washing my feet week after week, and he never talked. He just looked at me. And Martha says, Mary, the master has asked for you. He wants to see you. You think he couldn't have busted up in that house and said, what are you doing, girl? Who do you think you are? Who do you think I am? I run this universe. You get up and worship me. No, the God of the universe stands outside of the house of her pain and says, sis, go in and tell your sister I want to see her. Oh, he's a gentleman. And the Bible says that Mary 
because she wants to go so desperately. There's a fine line between love and hate. She gets up, and the Bible says she goes out of the house, and there is the God of the universe in human flesh gently standing at the door, observing, loving her, honoring her pain. And when she sees him, she falls down on the ground and she begins to cry. If you, if you, and she lets him have it. And he doesn't look down at her and say, who do you think you are? The Bible says without a word, without a theological discussion, he picks her up and looks at her. And he whispers, where is he? And wordlessly, they walk out to a grave. And oh, how we have missed this story. We walk out, they walk out to a grave wordlessly, the Bible said. And we say, when he got there, he said, roll the stone away, Lazarus, come forth. And that's the point of the story, isn't it? No. They came to the tomb. She stands beside him askew, her back still towards him, yet her heart drawn, knowing he was her greatest pain and he is her only hope of healing. And as she looks askant at him, she sees him standing there performing the greatest miracle of God, which was not to raise him from the dead. But the Bible said as she looked at him, the crucified God, oh, that she had known he would be crucified too. But we don't live life in retrospect. The one who would be crucified stood there at that tomb and big tears, the Bible said, the most powerful theology in all of the scripture in the shortest verse, Jesus wept. And as the tears streamed down her face, there was no resolve for why he didn't come, why he let him die, why he sat there for two days, why he came later after the death. There was no resolve, but there was healing. Because in following God truly, healing doesn't always come with intellectual resolve. Healing comes through this spiritual intuition of trust that is deeper than knowledge and reason and rationale. And she at least knew at that moment he hurt too. And as she blended her tears, perhaps finally a heart broke and her head leaned against his shoulders and even yet, no theological conversation ensued. No scripture verses were quoted. He pulls her close. And human divine tears mingle together. And the question of human suffering is not answered. But he never called himself the answerer. He called himself the comforter. Emmanuel, God fixing us. God with us. And we learn lessons about sovereignty, not so much how God causes things and how God redeems things. We learn a lesson about sovereignty and love. We learn that the sovereign Lord is hurting with us. And while we still long for the fix, until that ultimate fix when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, we are now emboldened because when he wipes every tear, some of them will be his own. And that kind of God, I can walk with through anything. A God who is with me. I wish you fixed things. But in the absence of that, I'm glad you're with me. 
That, brothers and sisters, is not a 2,000-year-old story. That is the story of every life in this room. And I wish in my bag of pastoral tricks I had access to raising the dead. For many years, I thought that's what Scripture meant I was supposed to be able to do, and I was a failed minister who could not heal. I don't have in my bag the words come forth from the grave, but in this bag I carry with me into every hospital room and bankruptcy court, I carry with me a bottle filled with the tears of God. And they are healing, brothers and sisters, until that day when tears shall be no more. Can you say amen? Thank you, Lord, for our time together and for this holy place and holy book. Thank you, Lord, for taking us into its pages. Thank you, Lord, that you are with the Marthas in this room who are wise and seeking a deeper theological meaning. Thank you for the Marys in this room who find you in tears, even yours. Thank you for the Lazarus in this room who have to live through the pain, wondering why you haven't showed up and yet experience life again. And thank you for us disciples who are so narcissistic that we think we can pray the rain away while the world is dying for water that we might have a ball game. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us in stories like this a bigger picture. We pray these things, and I pray that the healing grace of God might fill every heart in this room now, wherever it may be. Go with us, crying one. Go with us, weeping God, until that day of mourning turned to laughter. We pray all of this now in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. amen.